Ladies and gentlemen, uh, good evening and welcome to the LSE. And you can sit down for two minutes, because you won't for the rest of the hour, so might as well. Uh, my name is Ricky Burdett, and I'm a professor of urban studies here at the school and with uh, Philip Rode run LSE Cities. And tonight I'm delighted that um, it's not just an LSE Cities event here at the, uh, at the LSE, it's actually three or four different parts of the school which are effectively sharing um, Ed's uh, visiting professorship here. That includes the Center for Spatial Economics, uh, the International Growth Center, and also Henry Oberman's group, What Works. So there are a lot of us who have been very interested and are very interested in the work that Ed has been doing on cities now for a number of years. Um, I think the introduction about his sort of background may not be that necessary to many of you <coughs> in the room, but um, it's important to remind ourselves that Ed has been at Harvard for a number of years doing extraordinary research, but actually puts his money where his mouth is, I think, as a researcher and as an academic by not just being a professor of economics, the Fred and Eleanor Glimp Professor at the Department of Economics at Harvard. He also runs the Taubman Center for State and Local Governments, in other words, looking at what governance issues are around sort of the understanding of the economics and dynamic change of cities, but also the Rappaport Institute for Greater Boston, uh, looking at the dynamics of that sort of metropolitan region and how it's changing, both the latter two within the, the uh, Kennedy School of Government. Um, he's also um, has been teaching there at uh, Harvard in parts, not full-time, at the Graduate School of Design, and I'll come back to that in a moment, why that's important, certainly, to me. Um, he has very strong links, as I say, with London and at the LSE. It's maybe not by chance that there are at least three major events around urban themes happening in London, apart from tonight. There's one more from the Centre for Cities tomorrow and a two-day conference at, by the International Growth Centre starting tomorrow, and guess who's the main speaker at all of them? So maybe these events happen because uh, Ed, Ed is here. Ed is here as part of a sort of five, six months uh, journey back into Europe in many ways. In fact, his family have been living in different cities uh, across Europe uh, more or less a month of the time. And this sort of European period is ending in a few weeks. So we are delighted that we've been able to engage with him. Uh, Philip and I and other colleagues at the LSE have been talking about all our research projects with him and had that sort of feedback, which I hope we can also have later today. Now, uh, as an economist, I think uh, Ed is uh, known for many things, most notably the, the extraordinary book, The Triumph of Cities from 2011. The subtitle is actually even, even better than the title. The title's pretty good, too. But um, how our greatest invention makes us richer, smarter, greener, healthier, and happier. You hardly need to read the book, frankly. You know, it's, it's there. But the book is not based on opinion. It's based on fact and detailed analysis of all the facts that you will also hear of uh, tonight. And there's an enormous ability to have a curiosity uh, and a generosity around um, a whole range of themes which impact on urban life. I mean, I would say uh, of the economists that I dare to read, and of course at the LSE, not being an economist is a dangerous territory uh, in many ways, but uh, Ed always talks about the other issues and also in economic terms. So issues of human capital, health, obesity, ghettos, governance, and not really inequality, poverty, as we were saying a moment ago. Uh, last night, Joseph Stiglitz was talking about inequality here at the LSE, 
And I think there's a subtle difference, which we may come to later, on you know, what are the key issues that affect things like happiness. Uh, is it poverty or is it just inequality, being different from others, or is it just being unable to pay your bills, ultimately? Um, the physical side, the issues to do with the built environment, is something which I think, Ed, probably brings us closer. The LSE, LSE Cities is a center which looks at the relationships between spatial form and social form, very broadly speaking, with an architectural and urbanist uh, background. And Ed's sort of passion, which there is, lots of passion, um, for the built environment and how that feeds into an understanding of inform does come also from his DNA. His father, Ludwig, was uh, the... Uh, Mies van der Rohe, curator at the Museum of Modern Art in New York for many years, and one of the most distinguished jobs one can have in that industry. And in fact, gave evidence for those of you who remember when Mies van der Rohe designed a tower to be built in the city of London. Oh, God, what was that? 40 years ago, when the idea of having a 20-story tower was seen as completely insane. God, I wish that had been built. I mean, it would just be an elegant sort of reminder of what modernism can actually do. So there is very much a sort of a connection between built form and understanding of society, but Ed is an economist, and I learned that the other day while we were, he was talking, scribbling, doodling, as we all do while other people were speaking. What was he doodling? An equation on a page, piece of paper which was this long, and it was modeling who knows what. And he was very happy doing that equation, I have to say. He also tells me that he gave at least two of you kids maths lessons yesterday morning at 8 o'clock or something like that. It was quite... Wonderful that, uh, you know, you connect those things. Anyway, um, I think what was being modeled was certainly equations about suicide rates or happiness ratios or something like that, which we'll hear more about tonight. So the way tonight is going to be structured, as all events at the LSE, is a talk for about 40, 45 minutes. Then we will have time for questions, short questions from the floor. Microphones will be circulating, so please say who you are. It's good if you stand up, because then other people can see you, but we will try and bring sort of proceedings to an end by 8 o'clock. Now, one thing just to warn you, for those of you who haven't heard Ed, he talks like a roller coaster, in the sense that the speed and the excitement is really quite something. So there are a lot of images, a lot of scattergrams, but they all become explained and uh, the stories unfold. So I'd like you to join me in welcoming Ed Glazer back to the LSE, but hold on tight. It's Thank you. Thank you, Ricky, for those extraordinarily kind words and for the incredibly gracious uh, welcome that you've given me at the LSE. This is such a special institution, and I'm always so very glad to be here. And I'm really very grateful for all of you for giving me 90 minutes of your time for us to talk and to think about uh, cities. Um, I want to start, uh, as usual, with picking a fight with Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, and uh, Gandhi famously said that I regard the growth of cities as an evil thing, unfortunate for mankind and the world. And I, I want to just have a, have a separate message to my kids since they're here. Gandhi, good guy, good guy, just bad on cities, okay? Uh, now, uh, Gandhi presumably um, was not thinking that cities were bad because of their relationship with economic prosperity. For indeed, and this is across the countries of the world, this is the you know, uh, unalterable correlation between urbanization and per capita GDP. Um, this relationship, although we've had over the past 50 years an extraordinary rise in poor world megacities, 
The relationship between urbanization and income has not in any sense abated. In fact, this, this straight correlation is stronger than it was in 1960. Of course, I'm not trying to suggest anything that's causal about this, but looking at this graph, it's hard to think that we really know any pathways out of poverty into prosperity that don't in some sense run through city streets. Of course, again, implying no causality, Gandhi surely wasn't deriding cities because they at least seem to have at least a correlation uh, with economic growth. And this is the relationship across poorer countries only, those countries with per capita incomes below $5,000 in current dollars, um, and growth between 1960 and 2010 and urbanization in 1960. And, and, you know, again, the correlation is enormously strong. The places that were more urbanized in 1960 had much faster growth rates than the places that were less urbanized. Again, in no sense should you interpret this as, as meaning that I'm in, I'm in favor of pushing people off the farms into cities. But it certainly shouldn't, you know, wouldn't naturally lead you to look at this correlation and think to yourself that cities are evil things, bad for, bad for mankind and bad for the world. Um, Presumably, Gandhi thought that cities would kill our souls in some sense. But do they? Um, across the world, and this isn't that surprising, as you look at, at more urbanized countries, people who live in more urbanized countries typically say that they're more happy, not less happy. And this is what you're looking at here. The bulk of this, uh, a lot of this, is the relationship between happiness and country-level income. But the relationship remains statistically significant, even if you control for income. When you look within countries, and the bulk of this talk, almost all of this talk, is going to be within country and, and really just within U.S. and U.K. But when you look within countries, the relationship between urbanization and income gets fairly muddled once we turn to rich countries. And I, that's much of what we'll be talking about is that muddle. But when you look at poorer countries, and that's exactly what this graph is supposed to show, there's a very distinct pro-urban uh, bias in the happiness results, meaning that people who live in urban areas say that they're much happier than people who live in rural areas in poorer parts of the world. Each one of these dots shows the gap between urban and rural happiness in self-reported uh, opinion surveys uh, from the World Value Survey. And what these show, for example, this Mali number, shows that uh, there's a much higher uh, ratio of people saying that they're happy with their lives in urban Mali than in rural Mali. Uh, the same thing is true in India and in Ghana and Moldova and Rwanda and all of these poorer countries. The two sort of middle-income countries that go dramatically, or poorer countries that go dramatically the other direction, are Iraq, and this, these surveys were done between 2005 and 2007, which were not great years for urban living uh, in Iraq, uh, and Thailand, uh, which I ascribe to Bangkok's legendary um, traffic jams. Uh, but uh, when you turn to richer countries, it's really deeply muddled. I mean, there are some places like Sweden where the urbanites say that they're happier. There's some places like New Zealand, which go the other direction. But it becomes much, much messier. Um, but in poorer countries, it's hard to see where, what Gandhi's point is. Now, um, I'm going to switch now. And the bulk of what I'm going to be showing, the data that I'm most confident about is the U.S. data, where I'm going to be able to control for individual characteristics, and I'm going to be looking at... Um, differences across space and happiness. But I'm also going to be showing you some comparable UK data with which I'm much less uh, confident, but still I think it's very useful for, for comparison. And the UK data is the 1 to 10 scales on both life satisfaction and happiness that come from the Office of National Statistics. These will not be controlling for individual characteristics. They'll just be taking the straight local authorities' means of this data. Um, and the means are, occupy a fairly narrow range from sort of 8 on a 1 to 10 scale down to 6.8 uh, down there, which is the, which is the bottom. Um, and the starting fact, which is not exactly a fact that I'm, I'm 
you know, seems to sit all that well with either the title of my book or Ricky's introduction, is this negative relationship between density across UK local authorities and self-reported life satisfaction. And we're going to come back to this later and try and explain it. But it's, uh, it's an interesting fact and one that I think should motivate how we think about what's going on with, with cities over the transformation of the, of the 20th and 21st centuries. I should emphasize, before Ricky kicks me out of here, uh, that in fact the relationship between density and life satisfaction mm-hmm. does not show up within London boroughs at all. And this is across London boroughs, the relationship. And that's completely flat. That's, non, that's a non-relationship. If you really were inclined to, you could read a U in there, but I think that's a little bit crazy. I think the right answer is there's no real relationship between these things. Um, okay, now, back across the pond to the U.S., where I feel much more confident about this. So for the U.S., we're going to have four different data sets on happiness, all of which are going to ask slightly different questions. The biggest of them is going to come from something called the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System that has millions and millions of observations throughout the entire U.S. It was done for health reasons, but it happens to ask life satisfaction questions. And with this data, I can control for individual characteristics, particularly education, uh, age, gender, and then calculate an area-specific happiness number. It's really more of a life satisfaction number, but as I'll show you in a second, once you average those things up, they're really quite similar. Um, And there's a patent geography here. Um, Each one of these numbers is scaled, so it represents the share of a standard deviation at uh, a person level. So a number at like 0.05 means that this area is 120th away from the mean, 120th of a person level standard deviation. Okay? And so the difference between big and small, small, high and low happiness is roughly akin to an income difference of $20,000 or so in terms of happiness metrics. And as you can see, there are parts of America, Louisiana, Georgia, uh, uh, Colorado, that are, that are fairly happy, and then there are parts of America, most notably this old area in the Rust Belt, where happiness levels are quite low. Um, New York is also quite low. I personally will argue very strongly that this represents cultural factors in responding to happiness questions. For in fact, no self-respecting New Yorker would confess to being happy. Um, it's, like, it's like confessing that you're an idiot to your, to your uh, uh, surveyor. Um, but this geography is in fact clear. Now, the reason why this is so important for for economists is that the organizing principle of the economic approach to space is this idea of a spatial equilibrium, which is basically just the old line that there's no such thing as a free lunch applied to space. And the logic being that, look, if a place was nicer, cheaper, paid higher wages, wouldn't everyone move there? Or at the very least, wouldn't prices be bid up in that, in that area? How would it be possible for an area to be so great along every dimension? If you think that some areas are really giving you better levels of happiness in some, in some way, and happiness is really the be-all and end-all, then doesn't that pose some sort of a challenge to that? And that framework, that spatial equilibrium framework, has been for 50 years the organizing principle of my profession. It's the principle that lies behind very simple logical relationships like this one, the fact that people pay more for short commutes. I'm showing you this in Manhattan because it's as close as we can come to a one-dimensional city, of course. It's just a long, it's a long line. And what you can see here is the average commute times 
uh, across Manhattan. And unsurprisingly, the commute times are short, 20 minutes at the bottom of the island, and long, 50 minutes at the top of the island. This one shows median gross rent across Manhattan. Again, they're high at the bottom of the island. They're low at the top of the island. This seems to fit perfectly with the idea that there's no such thing as a free lunch. If you want a shorter commute, you've got to pay for it. And, of course, there are reams of evidence showing that people pay more for things like good schools or access to parks. Or if you look within New York City condominiums, co-ops, people pay 25% more for co-ops that are at the top of a building relative to identical co-ops at the bottom of the building. So roughly a 25% premium. For, for the view. Now, across metropolitan areas, and I'll show you this for the UK in a second, there's also, of course, a reliable relationship between incomes and rents. People pay more to be in labor markets that are healthier. Now, on one level, and this is the relationship, I've got median family income along the x-axis, along the horizontal axis, and uh, rents along the y-axis. On one level, the fit is great. These things line up perfectly. On the other hand, the actual slope is wrong. And by this I mean that for every dollar of income you get for being in an area, you only pay 13 cents more in rent. And I think we've all, as economists, cheered at our ability to sort of explain the world by this fact that rents and incomes go together without reckoning with the fact that, in fact, rents aren't really going up enough. If you really believe this spatial equilibrium story, they're not really going up enough. Now, when I look across the UK, I don't actually have rents. I have housing prices and I have income. And um, the number here is that the uh, 100 extra pounds of price gets you three extra pounds of income. So that would suggest a 3% return, which is not crazy, actually, in terms of the UK. So looking across UK local authorities, the price actually doesn't line up all that badly with, with what the income is. And that's what that data is showing you, this housing price over there and income there. Okay. But... But if some people are, some places are naturally happier, then maybe this whole you know, attempt to make sense of the world as having no free lunch in terms of geographies is, is built on sand. So with that, I have to engage with this happiness, with the happiness data. And as you'll see, I think there are many reasons for engaging in it. But I start very much with sort of the existential challenge that it poses for my, for my profession. Now, these spatial differences in happiness may either imply that this spatial equilibrium doesn't exist, or... Maybe what we call utility, what economists think people maximize, is not the same thing as happiness. Now, for those of you who are non-economists, you may hear the word utility and think that this, this thing should be the same as happiness. After all, that's what Bentham meant it to be. Uh, on the other hand, if you think mathematically, and as, as um, Ricky pointed out, I'm very fond of equations, when economists write down our equations, utility is actually not happiness. It's just a way of ranking choices. It's just like saying, saying something delivers a higher utility is just like saying you like it more. So there's no reason mathematically why these two things need to be in any sense equivalent. And I'll come back to that later. But of course, there are two other quite plausible explanations for why happiness differs across space. One of which is the places just have very different people. And even though we've controlled for incomes and we've controlled for uh, demographic characteristics, it's quite possible that, look, happy people move into uh, Louisiana and unhappy people move into uh, Kentucky, and that's all there is, there is to it. The fourth theory, which is beloved of um, certain behavioral economists, is that people are just dumb, uh, and that you know there's a free lunch from moving to Louisiana, but people aren't aware of it. Now, I, I like Louisiana, but I actually find that view a little bit hard to stomach. Um, but they're all sort of at least plausible explanations. Okay. Um, now, within these two views of happiness, um, I want to focus on the first, the first two in terms of these interpretations. And the first view is really this equivalence. 
is utilitarianism, is hedonism, is this view that goes back to Greek philosophers that happiness is both what we should maximize and sometimes what we do maximize. It should and is the human be-all and end-all. The other view, which is really sort of something that sits more in line with at least the way that I would naturally think of it, is more happiness is preferred to less, right? But it's not the be-all and end-all. And from this perspective, in some sense, the ha introduction of happiness by people like Richard Layard and others into economics is a great thing because it stops the economist primal sin, which is acting as if money is the be-all and end-all, which is equivalently foolish to the view that anything is the one be-all and end-all. Um, so happiness as an alternative you know, shouldn't be the be-all and end-all, but it's, it's an, an, an necessary, uh, it helps divert from that monomania about cash outcomes. But of course, you know, economists think that cash is important, psychologists think that happiness is important, and doctors think that health is important, and the truth of the matter is they all are. We, we all think that all, that all of them should be more, is better than, uh, more of them is better than less. Okay, so there are, of course, distinguished people who have argued that happiness is and, and uh, should be the be-all and end-all. And in economics, of course, the primary voice on this is Jeremy Bentham. Right? So Bentham, I'm saying this as, as, I think, the clearest statement of his view, nature has placed mankind under the governance of two sovereign masters, pain and pleasure, and it is for them alone to point out what we ought to do as well as to determine what we shall do. So it could not be clearer than that. We ought to and we should maximize happiness, right? We maximize pleasure, we minimize pain, it's the job of people, it's the job of governments, it's a very clear viewpoint. It is the hedonist viewpoint. Um, Mill basically accepted this, although it's somewhat more nuanced. The creed which accepts as the foundation of morals, utility, or the greatest happiness principle holds that actions are right in proportion as they tend to promote happiness, wrong as they tend to produce the reverse of happiness. And of course, this goes back to Democritus, right? Pleasure and the absence of pleasure are the criterion of what is profitable and what is not. There's another related view which is one that is, is more of a thermometer view of happiness. It's not that happiness is the goal. It's that if you're doing things right, you will be happy. Or perhaps you'll just say that you're satisfied in the these, in these, in these satisfaction questions. The medieval scholastic philosophers, for example, argued that if you were good, right, if you did God's will, you would be happy. They didn't particularly argue that that was the normative goal. That wasn't why you should be good. But it happened to be an extra advantage from being good is that it would make you happy. Um, so uh, with that in mind, let's turn to the questions that we, that we have and ask, do we think that these questions are likely to be thermometers? Which means if you're doing your life right, you're going to have higher answers to this. So the Burfus, this very large health survey, which is our dominant tool, asks, in general, how satisfied are you with your life? And there are four categories. And the bulk of respondents give their answers in the top two. The NSFH asks, first, taking things all together, how would you say things are these days? Seven-point scale from very unhappy to very happy. The General Social Survey says, taken all together, how would you say things are these days? Would you say that you are very happy, pretty happy, or not too happy? And Gallup asks, in general, how happy would you say you are? Very happy, fairly happy, not very happy, or not at all happy. Um, I, I, it is beyond me to parse the differences between these. And in fact, as an economist, I'm not prone to you know, be all that obsessed about, about philosophical differences between how you would answer one question or another. I can tell you that at the city level, Questions that are clearly designed towards happiness and questions that are designed towards how satisfied with your life look very similar. And this is across local authorities. Each one of these dots is a separate local authority. 
Um, the, this line shows the fairly tight fit. The, the slope is about 0 0.9, uh, 0.92. The correlation coefficient is about 75%. And if you restricted it to those cities with more than 1,000 of the sample, it rises to 85%. So a lot of this is probably just, random, it's just sampling error. So once you get to aggregating things up, even though I'm sure everyone in this room is capable of, of engaging in a, in a two-hour conversation about what's different between happiness and life satisfaction, once you average it up to 1,000 people or more, it's pretty much the same thing. The places that say that they're satisfied are places that say that they're happy, even if philosophically these ideas are, are in some sense distinct. Now, there's an alternative viewpoint, and it's a 2,500-year-old viewpoint that goes counter to the hedonic perspective. And I think of this mostly, above all, as being associated with the Stoic viewpoint. Right? This is Epictetus writing 1,900 years ago. What is our nature? To be free, noble, self-respecting, with subordinate pleasure to these principles, to minister to them as servant. Right? The point being is there are callings in life that are higher than merely seeking pleasure. And there are things for which it makes sense to be unhappy for. Right? The most notable fact on this, of course, that goes along with this is the well-known young parent effect in happiness ratings. That parents of young children as wonderful as they all are, parents, parents of young children typically say that they are significantly less happy in surveys. That does not mean that they are dumb, right? That does not mean that this was some colossal mistake. It is quite understandable, given the lack of sleep, given the various, various issues, but there are things that are worth not necessarily maximizing happiness over, and having, having children certainly uh, can, couldn't be one of them. certainly has been for me. Um, you hear that? Uh, okay. <laughs> Uh, it is not necessary, and of course, this is a view that economists move to over time. Um, it is not necessary for the economist to take sides with those who wrangle to prove or disprove that pleasure and pain alone determine conduct. This is Irving Fisher writing in 1892. Um, and the reason for this is that throughout the 20th century, Bentham's concerns seemed like philosophy without content, because we didn't measure happiness, because we didn't have something that was separate between happiness and, and other behavior. We could say that people maximized happiness or not. It was content-free, so we didn't really worry about it. As George Stigler wrote in 1950, the one changing element in the general knowledge was the growing skepticism of hedonism in academic circles. Right? But we could be skeptical of it, and it didn't matter. Now we measure the stuff. It's important. It's useful. Right? And I'll get to a little bit in the end the many ways that I think that cities can be using happiness research in order to make their governance better. But it's not necessarily the same thing as... Utility. It isn't the be-all and end-all. Um, as Becker and Rayo put it in 2008, uh, these examples suggest an alternative interpretation of the happiness data, namely that happiness is a commodity in the utility function the same way that owning a car and being, a he being healthy are. So it's something, again, that we prefer more to of than less, but not something that is in and of itself the prime objective. Now, in some sense, I think about this in terms of students coming to competitive graduate programs, whether at the LSC or, or at Harvard. I think it's hard for me to argue that coming to a highly competitive graduate program is likely to make you happier or necessarily more satisfied with your life. Because, in fact, you will be exposed to people who are very, very smart. You will be shown the limitations of your abilities all the time, certainly as, as, as I was. This will not necessarily make you happier. But nonetheless, it may well be something that is very much worthwhile doing. Okay. Now, uh, the structure of the talk that comes is to start with stylized facts, and I'm going to give you just a wide barrage of them. And again, I'm going to stand by the U.S. facts much more strongly than I'm going to stand by the U.K. facts, but to the extent to which they're the same, uh, perhaps you take, take something from it. 
The main fact that I'm going to push forward, the fact that I really believe in very strongly, and that's going to be true both for the UK and the US, is the very tight link between unhappiness and urban decline. Okay? That declining cities are unhappy. Okay? And that's the fact that I'm going to try and push more open. And that's actually the fact that relates to this density fact with which I started things. Um, I'm going to attempt at a summing up describing how this relationship between unhappiness and decline actually helps make sense of this 20th century arc from factory town to consumer city. And then I'm going to have a few observations on the future of cities and happiness. Okay. Um, now, how do we do this statistically? We're going to uh, estimate differences in MSA area effects. Um, we can do this in many different ways. They all tend to show that the, MS, the metropolitan areas have significantly different levels of happiness. We calculate the variance of these. Typically, we use what are called BLUPs, best linear unbiased predictors. What this means is we take the averages once we control for all your individual stuff, and then we shrink them to account for sampling error. So they're going to be slightly smaller than it would be if we just took, a, took a, uh, the average of the, of the sample. The, de- the deviation of, of MSA income is a roughly half the gap between earning $35,000 and $50,000 and earning fifty dollars and $75,000. And this is the distribution of blups of these MSA averages. So it's about between the top and the bottom, it's about one-fifth of a standard deviation at the individual level. Okay, um, now we can control for lots of individual controls. We typically don't control for income. Why? Because I tend to think of income as something that is determined in part by your location. Right? So I don't want to control for income in, in New York because, in fact, one of the reasons you come to New York City is the fact that you're going to earn more income. Um, the Burfus, this big, state, this big uh, health survey, does have a state implementation issue. So the states actually implement the survey. That can create you know, potential variation uh, that's undesirable. We can control for state fixed effects, uh, which we do in some of the specifications. We will also use the National Survey of Families and Households. This data is particularly important because it has migrants. So I can answer the question of whether or not people who come to cities that are happier, do they become happier when they come to those cities? Or when people leave these cities, do they lose happiness? So this gets at something of the question of whether or not the people who are living in happier areas, are they just innately happier? Is there something that's actually about the, the air, about the atmosphere that actually makes them happier? Interestingly, the two surveys actually don't correlate all that well with one another. Um, Now, the first thing I'm just going to show you is this is the National Survey of Families and Households. These are the estimates of happiness in this this survey with and without individual fixed effects. So along this axis are the estimates just from the straight data, okay, with individual controls, but not having individual fixed effects. Again, what I mean by individual fixed effects is I'm only looking at the impact on migrants. So I'm only looking at the impact of the city on people who change cities. There's basically no identification here from the people who are living in the same city at both time periods. I'm only looking at people who move from one city to another and asking what's the average change for these movers. And that's what you're getting along this axis. And what you can see here along the the vertical one, what you can see is the two things are fairly tightly linked, which at least should give you some confidence that this is actually a real effect and it's not just reflecting the selection of different people into different cities. Now, of course, I don't have... I can't force people to move. I don't have a a full experiment on this. It may be that people who have gotten happier are moving into happier places, and it may be that as they get happier, they select into happy places. I can't correct against that. Um, But I can tell you that when they move, they move in the direction, their happiness moves in the direction of the place that they're going to and away from the place they're going from. Okay. 
Now, in my U.S. data, I focus not on density, but on metropolitan area size. The two things are linked, but they're not exactly the same. Um, the reason why I didn't do metropolitan area size in the U.K. is that local authorities don't naturally have a metropolitan area size. They, what they do have is a density level. Um, and what you can see in 2000 is the relationship between metropolitan area size and happiness is flat. Um, although there is New York down here. Uh, which is both very big and not particularly high in this. But overall, taken across all metropolitan areas, it is not true that people are more or less satisfied with their life in big metropolitan areas in the U.S. But if I take happiness today and metropolitan area population in 1930, this shows up. Okay? And this is another way of looking at the, the population change result, with which I'm going to come back to. So people are not unhappier in cities that are big today. They're unhappier in cities that were big in 1930. Okay, so past population predicts unhappiness, not current population. Okay, next fact. And this I found deeply reassuring as a, as a New Yorker, um, is that happiness does not actually correlate all that well with suicide. Um, and uh, one interpretation of this, so this is the flat relationship between suicide and do you say you're unhappy. New York is, of course, down here. New York is both a place where people are more likely to say they're unhappy, but also a place that has extremely low suicide levels. This is also true of London. Okay? So you, if you want to think from an economist's point of view of, of suicide, it's a, a revealed preference if you will, a uh, measure of how, how satisfied with you are with your life, that uh, you're opting uh, to, give it, to give it back, if you will. And that, of course, shows uh, little of this. Now, I don't take away from this that the happiness stuff is, is uh, worthless by any stretch of the imagination. I do think that when you do see cities in which suicide is very low, even though they're unhappy, you should be particularly skeptical of, the, of those places. Um, because, in fact, in part, things like mental health does, in fact, correlate with happiness. I mean, it's not that it's totally unrelated to things, and it's also true at the individual level um, much more strongly. Okay. Now, since Joe Stiglitz was here earlier, I feel like I have to say something about inequality. Inequality is really interesting in terms of happiness data in the U.S. because two different data sets give you totally different answers. This is the general social survey, and, and I published this result in a paper about five years ago, that in fact across metropolitan areas, unequal metropolitan areas, according to the general social survey, are much less happy. It's a fairly convincing negative, negative result. Um, and it's mostly because these are big metropolitan areas. When I go to the larger sample in the, in the Burfus, this shows up. So you go from a relationship like this, which you think to yourself, my goodness, it's clear, inequality is misery at the urban level, to this one, and you say, but there's nothing there. Um, so I think this is an issue that needs more study. If anything, the best explanation for it is that, that the GSS is weighted towards bigger cities. So it may be that inequality is more of a problem in big cities than it is in small cities. Or it may be that there's nothing there. Okay. Um, Area-level characteristics. So I've already talked about population. Um, these two are both about education at the metropolitan area level. And there's a recent paper by Richard Florida that makes much of the correlation between education and area-level happiness across the U.S. Um, that is true until you condition on individual education. So it is true that areas that have more highly educated people, and that's what this first regression is showing, uh, have people who say that they're happier. But once I control for individual level education, and the tendency of people who are better educated in the U.S. to say that once they're more satisfied with their lives, that effect largely disappears. Okay? That's true also when you control for high school dropouts, is that if you don't control for individual education, it's a strong result. When you do, it disappears. Um, the UK equivalent 
is this is unhappiness across UK areas, and this is the share with zero to uh, the, the lowest level of qualifications that they give you in, in the data, um, in the ONS data. So this is a negative relationship, but again, I don't have in my UK data any ability to control for individual level skills right now. So I have no idea if this is something that would persist or not, but it does appear to be true in the UK as in the US that more low levels of skills are negatively correlated with happiness. The last result, and these last two, which I leave as being, I think this is a hugely interesting result. It's not one that I've done enough on myself, but I leave open to anyone who's interested in it. This is the relationship between segregation and unhappiness, and happiness. So there's on net, whether or not you're white or black, a relationship between segregation and unhappiness across American cities. And the effect becomes much stronger for African Americans. So African Americans who live in more segregated cities are much less happy than African-Americans who live in less segregated cities. I have not followed this up. The bulk of my work on on segregation was 15 years ago. But I think that this is a fascinating piece of evidence and one that continues to suggest about the many ways that when minorities are cut off from the mainstream of urban life, from the dynamism that is so central at the heart of our great cities, that in fact the whole benefits of the city erode. And I think that's that's something that is surely worthy of more study. Okay, these are some UK graphs. I've already talked about this. One of the hypotheses for density that sort of immediately came up and for the moderate happiness levels in some of the London areas is, well, sure, they're unhappy. They're working too hard. Um, Now, I don't have... I'm not, again, showing the individual stuff, but at the area level, people who work in areas where people are, are working more than 48 hours a week, they're actually more happy rather than less happy. Um, I attribute this to spouses who are happy that their other spouses are out of the home, uh, but there are many different explanations for it. I don't know how much to take, to take away from this, but it doesn't seem that, that the high density or the London effect are being driven by unhappy people overworking in these areas. At least that's the first thing that I take away from this. Um, the one thing that does come across very clearly in the data, and it explains about one half of the density unhappiness relationship in the United Kingdom, is the unemployment unhappiness Relationship. Now, that's long been known at the individual level that the gap in happiness between employed and unemployed people is huge. Okay? But this relationship is actually 10 times too large to be explained solely by the individual relationship. Okay? So the coefficient on this is about 10 times as big if you just looked at, the, at what you'd expect to see from moving people from unemployment to employment in terms of aggregate happiness levels. Um, it's a striking fact uh, it confirms certain, you know, I tend to think that, that long-term joblessness is the largest unsolved social problem that we have in the United States. That the fact that when I was born, one in 20 prime-aged American males were jobless, and today that number is 17%. Right? And I think certainly the evidence on the unhappiness of the long-term unemployed confirms the view that, that this is a life of, of misery and, and lacking purpose. And, um, but... The fact that the aggregate relationship is so much stronger than the individual relationship is itself puzzling. Is this a reflection of the fact that if you've got miserable people around you who are also unemployed, that's making you more miserable? If so, it counteracts the view that people, that you have these, these clusters of poverty because people are having fun hanging out with the pub with other people who are unemployed. Um, but also needs more studies. Um, this shows the relationship between density and unemployment okay, across UK local authorities. So Density, unemployment here, this is not a happiness regression. The reason why I'm showing you this is to explain why it is that the unemployment-unhappiness relationship explains a significant portion of the density-unhappiness relationship. Because denser areas in the UK typically have higher unemployment levels. This should not be a surprise. Cities have historically 
always attracted people who uh, were poor, who came to the world with less. Right? They are places that are beacons of opportunity, and that actually predicts urban poverty. Right? Cities have abundant poor people, not because cities make people poor, but because cities attract poor people with the prospect of getting out of unemployment, with the prospect of the ability to get around without a car for every adult. Right? And that certainly is a large part of what's going on here, is this selection of people who can't afford uh, a suburban lifestyle into urban, into urban areas. Um, now, next fact on this. The growth fact. And this is the single strongest fact that comes out of the data. This is the relationship between happiness in the Burfus and population growth between 1950 and 2000 in the US. Now, one thing that isn't entirely obvious, because I've just drawn the straight line, is that this relationship is actually highly concave. It's highly nonlinear. It's a very strong positive relationship below the median and essentially a flat relationship above it. So it's not that places that are growing really fast are really happy. It's that places that are shrinking are really miserable. Okay? That's what you should be seeing in this. Now, this is the regression coefficient version of this. This is the change in the population below the median with various other controls. It has a t-statistic of about 10, which shrinks to a t-statistic of about 5. And this is above the median where you get nothing. And again, this is very, very robust to basically anything you want to do with this relationship. Now, what was a fact that I didn't know when I was giving this, when I, you know, at the beginning of this week I didn't know this fact, is this is actually also true for the UK. I, I, at least with these ONS local authority characteristics. So I take population growth. In this case, I just have 1981 to 2011. I do exactly the same spline, meaning I cut the slope at the median of the sample. And there's a significant positive relationship on population decline and nothing in terms of population growth. So this is, and across, across data sets, whereas things like the inequality variable are very fragile, this is extraordinarily robust. So it's true in four distinct data sets for the United States. It's true for the NSFH. It's true for the General Social Survey. It's true for the Burfus. It's true even for Gallup. Um, it's unchanged by a wide range of, in of individual controls. You can control for income. You can control for health. You can control for anything you want. And this thing remains extraordinarily robust, at least that I've been able to find. It is robust to city-level controls. It's not just crime. It's not just the weather. It's not just unemployment. They don't impact the effect. Um, Individual fixed effects, so this is again the migrant story, do cause the results to become imprecise, but in larger cities the effect remains. And I'll show you, this is just looking at these individual effect, fixed effects estimates for the NSFH. And as you can see, it's still a statistically significant positive slope below the median and not above the median. Um, okay, now, perhaps the most surprising fact for me, and it didn't surprise me necessarily that declining cities were unhappy. I mean, I think of Detroit, and I certainly think of it as being a place of misery. But what really surprised me is the first question I set out to ask is, are these cities declining because they're unhappy or unhappy because they're declining? And the first thing I did to look at this was to try and see what I could get in terms of historical data. And I had two sources on this, one of which is the General Social Survey, which begins asking questions about happiness as early as the 1970s. So what I can do here is ask whether or not the same urban growth variable had more or less of a correlation with unhappiness in the past and comparing the 1970s through to the 2000s. And what these interactions show you is that basically the, the positive relationship ha gets weaker and weaker as time goes on. So the cities were, that were declining were far more unhappy in the 1970s than they are today. That in fact, they were unhappy first, and in fact, if anything, that unhappiness has shaded somewhat as the decline has occurred. 
The same result comes out when we look at Gallup data from the 1940s. And here I am more limited in what I can look at. Basically, I have a dummy variable for being in a city, and this is actually a city, not metropolitan area, with a population over half a million people. But look at what happened just to show you what were those cities. These were the largest cities in the U.S. in 1950. So out of them, right, eight out of the 10 lost at least 20% of their population. Uh, three out of them lost more than 50% of their population. So these large cities were, in fact, declining cities. And they were, if you look at this data, dramatically un- less happier. So this is, a, a, uh, you know, this, is this 10% drop here that you see in this. It's really quite large and much larger than almost anything else. So it really looks like, when I look at the data, that the unhappiness came first. That, in fact, it's not that, you know, Scranton, Cleveland, became unhappy as they unraveled, uh, although they certainly would be understood for doing so. It's instead that these places were never good at being being happy, and yet the change occurred. So this moves me from this barrage of facts to something of a wrap-up, right, of of an attempt to make sense of this decline fact. So uh, the interpretation is that, in fact, Gandhi and the romantic poets who couldn't stand, stand cities, and Thomas Jefferson had a point. Now, while I would be the last person to have anything negative to say about Queen Victoria's London, right? I'm a, I'm a loyalist for, for a city of smoke and, and steam and grime. But uh, the view that these were not places that were geared to human pleasure is probably right, right? That, in fact, they were highly productive, but they were not places that were naturally designed to be, to be pleasure domes for people coming in. This reflects, and in the U.S., it reflects both exogenous amenities, like the fact that America built its cities in its colder areas, right? Typic- for many reasons, one of which was access to the waterways of the north, um, other of which was that it was harder to have manufacturing in places that were very hot and before the advent of, ma- of air conditioning, but also its endogenous amenities. It's those amenities created by proximity to the slaughterhouses of Chicago, to the smoke that came out of the factories of the 19th century, and, of course, the problems that cities have demons of density, right? And it took millennia for us to figure out how to tame those demons. So we're so used to walking out into this glittering London of the 21st century and taking safety and clean water for granted, right? We forget, forget the enormous downsides that being close to, close to people can be, whether or not it's getting yourself you know, stabbed in a London street in 1870 or uh, drinking unsafe water. And indeed, this is sort of the stockyards in Chicago, right? A tremendous you know, kernel of productivity, but not really a pleasant place to live next to on, on uh, too many grounds. And, and of course, the health consequences were particularly dire, right? These are death rates in New York over the past 200 years. A boy born in New York in 1900 could expect to live seven years less than the national average. That's about the same as the life expectancy loss in Queen Elizabeth's London, right? These multiple year losses were part of city life throughout most of human history. No wonder they weren't all that happy, perhaps. Um, Now, over the course of the 20th century, we've had a reshaping, and the reshaping has been much more dramatic in the U.S. than it has been in the U.K. because we're willing to abandon our old cities and just give them up and then move to some new place, and we've got lots of land for doing that in a relatively callous urban policy at the national level. And and, uh, as this happened, we saw a great reshaping of, of America, and in some sense, it's the decline of the factory town and the rise of the consumer city. And one of the things that I, I did when I was thinking about this stuff and this decline of, of the cost of moving, moving goods is that essentially what this did is it freed up, it freed up cities from having to locate to, in places that were good for companies to make stuff and enabled them to move to places where were pleasant for people to live. 
Think about the retiring Midwestern farmers who came to Los Angeles at the start of the 20th century. They weren't coming there because it was somehow or other a great place to produce stuff. They were coming there because it was beautiful, because it was pleasant. And this was the rise of the consumer city made possible by the footloose nature of manufacturing of production over the course of the 20th century. What I, you know, one fact that goes along with this is I've created this, I created this index, which is basically based on the combination of prices and uh, housing prices and, and incomes. And it uses this same logic of the spatial equilibrium, you know, with which I began this talk. It, High amenity places are places that have really high prices relative to incomes. Low amenity places are places that have really low, low prices relative to incomes. And these are the places that rate high on amenities in, according to this measure. Nine out of the ten are in coastal California and one is Honolulu, Hawaii. It may not be my personal preference, but it does correspond with what much America's like. This group is a sort of a rogues gallery of American metropolitan areas, some of which are too hot, some of which are too cold. And this is what the amenity index looks like when correlated with growth over the 1980 to 2000 period. So there is clearly this move towards places that people like. Some non-trivial portion of this is just te temperature, right? It's just the fact that there's no variable that better predicts metropolitan area growth during the 20th century than January temperature. Now, this view tells us that we sort of transform things, right? That we move from cities that were unpleasant to cities that were more pleasant. And the cities that continue to have economic mojo, the manufacturing cities like New York City, Right? And let's not forget, the largest industrial cluster in the United States in the 1950s was not automobile production in Detroit. Right? It was garment production in New York City. But those manufacturing cities that succeeded, that managed to keep their population, also had enough resources to introduce safety, to change their public spaces, to become exciting places to, places to live. Um, so this view is that we've transformed our cities, but in many cases, the holdovers are still there, and we're still, it's still an unfinished task. Now... With this, right, I return to the spatial equilibrium and the idea of compensating variation. So if there is still differences in happiness across space, is there compensation for it? Was there compensation originally? Well, let's go back to the 1940s. How do you think you compensated people for living in unhappy cities, in those cities that would subsequently decline? Well, you paid them more. And that's what the data shows, that the people who lived in the cities that would subsequently decline, the cities that, that are now unhappy, were paid much better than the people who now live in cities that are happier. Right? That's the first thing that shows up. That's no longer true. Today, how are they being compensated in the U.S.? They're, the people who are in unhappy cities are paying much less for their rents. Okay? So they're also receiving a compensation, and that's what, that's what this shows. Now, this is rents and population growth. This is rents and happiness, excluding California. In the U.K., it turns out they're getting both. So this is happiness and rents and happiness and housing prices across uh, the U.K., and that's a strongly positive relationship. So the, those people who live in happier areas in the U.S. are paying more for, for rent. And you know what? They're actually earning lower incomes, too. So people are, you know, a natural economist interpretation of it is that there are some areas that are, no, that's just London. This is lower earnings. So this is life satisfaction. This is earnings. This is life satisfaction and happiness. They're paying more in prices. They're getting less in income. Right? So this is this view that happiness is something that we value, but you know, for enough money, we'll put up with a little less happiness, and that's not the craziest thing in the world. Um, okay. Click. Uh, okay. Uh, now, why are poor nations different? So I showed you a little bit about why happiness is, is much higher in urban areas than in rural areas. I think there's a really clear reason for this which is that poor nations today, the poor nations are urbanizing, are much poorer than our countries were when they reached comparable levels of urbanization. 
So this is just a graph of the world, and what I'm showing you is the share of countries that are more than one-third urbanized by income brackets in 1960 and today. So what this shows is that for countries with incomes between four and five thousand dollars, both in 1960 and today, 80 percent of those countries, both then and now, are more than one-third urbanized, are largely urban. Three and four thousand dollars, same thing, no big difference. Go to the poor categories. What share of countries with per capita incomes below $1,000 were more than one-third urbanized in 1960? Zero. Not a one. For indeed, in 1960, to be poor meant to be rural, which had been the truth throughout almost all of human history. Today, this is no longer the case. The ability of poorer countries to feed themselves, not with their own agricultural surpluses, but with food imported from, from abroad, makes it possible to imagine to have cities that exist in vastly poorer places that were ever true. America didn't reach 50% urbanization levels until the 1920s, when our per capita income was about $7,500, 20 times what the Congo is today. Um, now, so if you compare 2015 Congo versus 1910 U.S., the U.S. was a lot richer, its agricultural prosperity made urbanization possible. Its railroads made urbanization possible by moving that agricultural surplus. And as a result, in this wealthy agricultural country, and we could say the same thing about the UK in the 19th century, rural life might have been a little dull, but it was hardly horrific. Right? Um, it's very different in the war-torn Congo. It's a very different world. When you're imagining urbanization at these much lower income levels, right, the life that they're comparing it to, the rural life, is very, very different. And so urban horrors, which exist in both 1910 New York and 2015 Kinshasa, are real. But they're comparing it against a very different rural benchmark, and a rural benchmark that is, in fact, much worse. Now, I persist in thinking the great task ahead is to improve urban livability in the developing world. And um, you know, I'm delighted to see my friends from IGC here, because I think that is really one of the great International Growth Center goals, is to try and think about what policies, what interventions can really make urban living uh, in poorer places uh, better. Now, so this is a view in which happiness fits into a, an arc of cities going from unpleasant factory towns to the playgrounds of the, of the 21st century. It's a view in which happiness is useful, but it is not the be-all and end-all. It is not something that we can say if people aren't necessarily maximizing happiness, they're screwing up. Um, but it doesn't mean that happiness isn't enormously valuable. So uh, Ricky was mentioning the, the you know, tremendous need that we have for more social science of space, of physical spaces. Well, happiness can be helpful for this, right? It's not very useful if you, let's say, looked at an experiment where you randomized people into a different type of office. It's not very useful to look immediately at their earnings and say, did their earnings go up? But it might be worthwhile asking if their happiness went up, if they had a higher hedonic flow from being in there shortly thereafter. You might actually get something useful from that. And I certainly have been strongly supportive of people like the mayor of Somerville who have tried to measure happiness in their city as being one index of something that's, that's going on. Um, they can give all sorts of high-frequency measures of innovations, like parks or other uh, improvements. Um, happiness can also be, uh, it, be used to, to, um, as one sort of ingredient in thinking about what leaders could do. And I think that's, that's the, the point on it. Alone, it's extreme, but together, it's, it, with other things, it's useful. Now, as we look towards the future... I think it's important, and that's where I'm sort of going to veer away from the, the negative relationship with density across the whole UK, which I think is a residue of an industrial past, towards the non-relationship or even the positive relationship in some of the London, London boroughs. I think looking forward to the 21st century, there is no trade-off between density and happiness. Right? That in fact, we can craft, and we are crafting, cities that are enormously happy places and that are also are dense. Um, we still need more policy interventions to fix that. Density, even today, requires management. There's a reason why people who live in 
New York like government more than people who live in low-density areas like Montana do. They need it more. They need it to manage the downsides of, of density. Um, in one of the things that's been particularly found to be correlated with unhappiness is sitting in traffic commutes, an area in which New York and many other cities could learn from London's pioneering work on, on traffic congestion. Um, and again, I think the happiness can be useful in terms of thinking about key public aspects of urban life uh, for the future. Now, I want to end this by citing Bernard Mandeville, who is in many areas, with his fable of the bees, is one of those great sources of wisdom written almost 300 years ago. And I think it's you know, both a helpful force for thinking about cities, but also for thinking about happiness itself. Um, this is Mandeville. To be happy is to be pleased. And the less notion a man has of a better way of living, the more content he'll be with his own. The greater a man's knowledge and experiences in the world, the more exquisite delicacy of his taste, and the more consummate judge he is of things in general. Certainly the more difficult it will be to please him. Happiness shows unsophistication, something that those New York survey respondents presumably knew something about. Uh, but when a man enjoys himself, laughs and sings, and in his gesture and behavior shows me all the tokens of content and satisfaction, I pronounce him happy and have nothing to do with his wit or capacity. Um, that's useful when viewing the second one, which is clearly a statement about urban life and about urban unhappiness in his own era. Um, if asked where I thought it was most probable that one might enjoy true happiness, I would prefer a small, peaceable society in which men, neither envied nor esteemed by neighbors, should be contented to live upon the natural product of the spot they inhabit, to a vast multitude abounding in wealth and power. So he's making it clear that in his own life, in his own 18th century world, cities, the London that he loved, was not a place that he thought was particularly conducive towards happiness. But of course, Mandeville still loves it nonetheless. and makes it abundantly clear that he would give, under no circumstances, would trade off the excitement of the city for any other place. And I think on that note, I'll, I'll pause for questions. Ben Page, I think you might want to comment on this issue of the connection between happiness. I'm putting you on the spot. This wasn't prepared. Yeah. Ben Page has done a lot of the research on um, happiness in the UK and other uh, European cities, just over there. I just wonder whether you could add to some of the speculations that Ed has made, as he said, in a way, for the first time. Well, I think what was interesting is the... Um, American, this, this focus on density, and obviously, it, you know, that's, that's absolutely central, but what, what I was interested in was the absence of poverty, and particularly for the UK, the index of multiple deprivation has been an amazing thing, and an, an amazing predictive variable, and often explains, so some of these things where we're looking at density, are we actually measuring poverty? And it may be different in different countries. So I, I, I think the unemployment variable somewhat gets at that, and I think yeah. that's, that's that very robust relationship. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, at all try and claim that I'm showing that unemployment is more powerful there than poverty or multiple, or multiple deprivation. I think that's exactly right. One of the things that makes me slightly anxious about focusing too much on poverty in the UK data that I showed is that none of this has individual level controls. Yeah. And I would feel much more comfortable with this if, 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 as I had done for the US, I was looking at the area level effects controlling for individual deprivation, which I unfortunately was not able to do. But I think the unemployment, the unemployment result clearly shows yeah. that Please. places that have, you know, that are full of people who are deprived are, are less happy. And I, I certainly agree very strongly with that. Yeah. Um, and of course, that's, and it, you know, this is so central when we think about cities and their critics, right? That it is so natural 
for people to look at urban poverty and to say to themselves, this is a sign of urban failure, where they should be looking at it and say to themselves that those poor people weren't accidentally thrown there, they aren't a result of the cities, they're coming there because cities offer something better, and they continue to do so. And I think anyone who's walked through, you know, we were just hearing about this amazing research that's being done at LSE cities uh, this afternoon about um, immigrant streets, immigrant high streets within London, right, that are just thriving with hubbub, with activity, with intense, you know, economic, economic actions and cultural actions. Uh, this is a sign of cities doing what they continue to do. They're attracting people who start with so little and giving them an opportunity to connect with each other, to learn from one another and to become something better. Some questions? So you can put your hand up so I can see. So microphone. So first here, should we take two Together, two or three together? Then just a comment really on, on, on governance and autonomy. Are are those um, you mind standing up? Sorry, are those uh, are cities that are more autonomous or are more control in control of their own affairs? Um, are they happier or more successful than those that are run centrally? Oh, like most let's of... get into some current political stuff in the UK. That's great. Absolutely. You want to go there now? Yeah. Um, go ahead. Uh, the 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 U.S. data is unclear. The U.S. data is un- uh, uh, the, In fact, in general, the correlations with autonomy are relatively weak within, within the U.S. So I think the right answer is that local autonomy can be a very good thing um, and can lead to lots of great innovations like those we see, for example, in New York or, or Boston. But it can also give you some of the most dysfunctional uh, American cities, which are also autonomous and you know, uh, the truth of the matter is that the best can be very good, but the bad can be very bad. And I think it, it, I'm certainly with those who favor more freedom for cities and more, more ability for cities to shape their own destiny. But we should be aware that, that you know, the overall quality of UK government as currently stands is pretty darn good by global, by global standards. So you want to be cautious, uh, cautious about it. So a cautious, a cautious positive note on me. Yeah, not, not everyone in the room will agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That I was cautious or that it was positive? No, that is positive. Yeah. Okay. On, and let me see who else. Hands up so we can get the microphone there. Gentleman, just go ahead. Yeah, so you normally say that cities attract people. And you talk about, you know, people moving from cities to cities or people that move from the countryside to the city because they look, uh, you know, they're nicer. I, I just wonder if you have looked at the phenomenon in Latin America, where I come from, where people are actually forced to move to cities for different reasons. And... Um, you know, I wonder if you have checked between happiness in the city and unhappiness in the countryside, that correlation at the same time. You know. Can you tell us who you are? So I... uh, Luis Alberto Torres. Um, I'm from the Bartlett University. Right, thank you. And let's have also a gentleman over there. Can you mind standing up? Uh, Gerard McCraner from McCraner Lavington Architects. Architect. What I liked and took from your speech was that old perceptions from our 19th century cities um, in a way still have an impact on how we perceive our cities today. Um, it's that idea that even in London today that uh, a sort of uh, the rural retreat is romanticized um, and, you know, and more so because you, you don't live there regularly but that it is something to get away from and to get out of the city. Um, and that the idea that unhappiness comes before decline. But within your work, have you come to the point of defining tipping points of uh, at certain moments uh, uh, where um, um, certain uh, things maybe got to a certain level where the uh, unhappiness developed? And I'm particularly thinking then of uh, the growth of Chinese cities, Beijing, 
going towards 30 or 40 uh, million. And the question and is? And they must be getting to that tipping point. Is Beijing yeah, too big? tipping point. Let's take these two. Both, both great questions. Um, the, the, I think your point about the, uh, we're shaped by our 19th century cities, and in some sense, even our, the physical landscape of the 19th century still shapes those cities, particularly in places that have not had economic success in the last 50 years, right? And that's part of, that's part of the world of you know, uh, Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, or which is, tends to rank quite low on many of the happiness ratings in, in, in the U.S. Um, the, um, the, the, these, these visions are still powerful, and they're just not right. And I think that that's exactly right. And I want to sort of take a particularly, I want to actually go down the architectural lens for us in a second. Uh, there are so many opinion surveys that are taken about people just asking them whether or not they want to live in high-rises versus not, or whether or not they think that high-rise housing is okay or not. Now, so much, I think, of UK visions of high-rise housing are shaped by social housing developed on particular high-rise dimensions that were never particularly well-designed for the way people like to live and are not at all, in, in any sense, you know, compatible with the view of what high-rise housing can be in the 21st century, where you know, cities throughout this world are dotted with high-rise housing that is deeply desirable, created by private sector entrepreneurs who are not in the business of selling misery. Uh, They're, in fact, attracting people who are willing to pay very large amounts of, amounts of money for it. Um, so I think that, that so often uh, these, these misconceptions you know, persist. Um, the, the other thing I think that is important, though, on density and low density is the importance of choice, right? So one of the most critical aspects of sort of the economist's view of thinking is this belief that people are heterogeneous and that there isn't a right way to live. And that as long as the right job of, of government is to empower people, is to get the costs right, so to charge people for the negative social, social costs of the actions that they take, like, for example, environmental da damage that they may create, but fundamentally then to give people freedom to allow those people who want to live in low-density dwellings once they're paying the social costs of their actions to do so, and for you know, allowing people who live in high-rises to want, and, and want to live there to live there as well. And I think that really is sort of central to at least the way that I, I view the world, that I'm not trying to preach for one way, of, one way of living, although I am trying to preach for public policies that are more balanced, that don't act as if the only true United Kingdom can be one in you know, low-density rolling hills, or that the American dream can only exist behind a white picket fence in the, in the suburb and policies that are balanced, that don't weigh on the, on the finger towards one place of living versus the other. Um, the question of being forced off of, of rural areas, the question of what you mean, it's a great question. It's a question of what you mean by forced. Um, unquestionably, that there are many horrific things that happen in the developing world, both in cities and in, in low-density areas. And in some cases, you can actually talk about people certainly being expropriated. Uh, and even, you know, force is not an unfair. I don't mean to sugarcoat it. I just mean to, mean to suggest that, that, you know, presumably they still had options as terrible as, as they were. Um, the, the, at least the way I interpret this is exactly the statement of why it is that urban happiness is, it seems to be so much higher than rural happiness in many poorer countries of the, of the world today. And it's, it's precisely that the rural, rural living is not the bucolic life of a traditional English countryside. It's a world in which horrible things happen in, in, much, of the, in much of the developing world. Um, and as a result, we should be you know, equally wary of trying to restrict the growth of cities or put artificial barriers in their place. Um, the, um, the, the, the urban... Um, you know, the urban, uh, urban issues around this I mean, are, you know, to me at least, so, it's made so clear when you actually compare the lives of people living in, let's say, the rural northeast of Brazil with, versus the lives that they're living even in the, you know, in the worst favelas of, of Rio. I mean, those choices don't look stupid at all to me. 
Right? Those, those lives in the rural north, these are very tough lives. Now, we all wish that they both would get better. I'm, I'm certainly in favor of improving both rural well-being as well as urban well-being, but their decisions certainly look perfectly reasonable, perfectly reasonable to me. Um, you just mentioned artificial barriers to effectively the growth of cities. What, what do you mean by that? Oh, sorry, I forgot to get to China, too. It's, uh, the, but, no, yes, no, I would but, mean... Uh, but, uh, so an example so, of an artificial yeah, barrier yeah. to cities would be artificial height restrictions that make it impossible to build up. Mumbai is, for example, one and a quarter floor area ratios that make it impossible to, right. to generate density would be a clear example of such a thing. Um, are Chinese cities going to be too, are too big? I don't see anything that suggests there's a, there's a tipping point. I think the right way to view it is that there are positive aspects of cities. There are agglomeration economies that rise more or less monotonically with city population, right? Maybe slightly concave, but it generally rises. There are also downsides of density, right? They also rise uh, typically with, with, uh, with density, with population size, crime, congestion, contagious disease, and so forth. Now, that shape of that lower curve of the cost of density is shaped by the quality of government, okay? So it's not something that is you know, enshrined in stone. And an effective government, you know, a Singapore, can basically deal, I think, with almost any population density levels and make it work. If you have enough money and enough political competence, everything works out. When you don't have th- those things, things get much worse, much, quick- much more quickly. So how's London doing? <laughs> you, know, you know my views. Well, yeah, I, think, I do, I but... I certainly, think, yeah. I certainly think London could use a little more density, but the question is... And in part, you know, I mean, I think the case for London needing more density is not that I think that... You know, London will necessarily be better as, a, as an experience if you, if you, you know, are affording it. I just think that there's a, you know, a lot of people want to be in London. And a lot of people, rich and poor, want to come to this city. And you see this in the housing prices. And, uh, you know, I think we have to remember every time we say no to a new building, to a new residential building within London, we're saying no to families who want to be part of this amazing city. So that's why, for me, I I believe very strongly that, you know, allowing more density, however it's made possible, allowing more space within the city is something devoutly to be wished, because it's about about freedom, it's about options, and it's about participating in this amazing thing that you have here. Where are the... uh, Okay, right at the back, in the middle, with his hand up? And your government is pretty good at dealing with downsides of density. Okay, down here. Okay. Where's the other... Can we... Over here, please? So let's have one, two, and then three. Thank you. Chris Brown from Igloo, a property developer not in the business of selling misery. (laughs) You mentioned very quickly at the end um, a need for more post-completion surveys of happiness in relation to buildings. Could you say a little bit more about the methodology and how you you actually do that? How How do you... at what point do you survey the people who are going into those buildings to get your baseline? You, you know, what I, what I really want is I want, you know, I'm, I'm a social scientist, right? So what I really want is you to randomize who gets put in the building and who doesn't get put in the building. That's, that's what I really want you to do. Uh, however, that's possible. Uh, but if you're not able to do that, then sure, I want, I want something that is um, as early as possible before the movement that you can possibly do it. Right? I don't want people anticipating the move. I don't want people whose lives are being disjointed because they're expecting the move because of the process of doing it. I want it as early as you can do it. Um, and then I want regular, regular follow-ups in a variety of different ways. And the more that you can get towards something that feels like randomization, the better off we are. And I'd like you know, as wide a range of questions about experience as you can possibly get. But you know, I think this is... It is time for us to sort of take a really hard social science approach towards physical structures. I mean, you know, I believe strongly in my bones that Churchill was right. Our, our, our buildings shape our lives. And yet, there's so little hard statistical evidence that I can point to that actually shows that. 
that that's a, you know, it, it leaves me feeling deeply, you know, unfulfilled on this. And I think that really is, is the step forward on this, is measurement of the quality of the experience, of the ideas that are created, of the productivity that occurs after, after occupancy. But if you've got an opportunity for doing it, I'm happy to talk at more length with you about it, especially if you'll give me randomization. Yeah. Hi. Uh, so I'm Vikas from the IGC. And uh, so last week I was looking at the Raj Shetty's uh, social mobility papers and uh, some of the data sets and map. And looking at his map and like your map today, like my question would be like, well, have you looked at, uh, well, the correlation between cities with higher social mobility and the happiness? So, well, in the US particularly, looking at Raj data and your data, if you have an answer. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of funny, right? So many of the happier areas uh, were places like Louisiana and Georgia. And Georgia is terrible on Raj's social mobility measures. So it's hardly as if it's a one-for-one, one, the happier places are more socially mobile. The biggest correlate of uh, mobility in his data is share of families with single parents, right, overwhelmingly. So this is Raj Chetty's work looking at intergenerational mobility. And that's, that's a correlation that we knew in the U.S. from the 1980s, that single-parent households correlated very well in the 1980s with, say, crime levels and other measures of sort of social, social traumas. No one was exactly sure what that meant, Right? But it's, it's, a, it's a very strong correlation. It continues, uh, continues to, to hold in, in his data. Um, but the happiness correlations aren't, aren't there. It's, a different, it's along a different vector. Uh, it's just not at all the same. It's just not at all the same things. That there are plenty of places with low mobility levels that have high levels of unhappiness and uh, high levels of, of happiness and vice versa. Um, Do you mind standing up? Tell us who you are. Oh, yes. Yeah, thanks. I'm Filippo Sebastio, uh, IGC Bangladesh. And I live in Dhaka, which is renowned to be one of the probably least planned cities in the world with a, well, the, the worst livability. And one thing that doesn't come in your slides is trust, sense of trust and social network. And there was a recently very interesting paper from India where they measured like, how people that got moved because of a lottery from slums to better... Uh, neighborhood, they felt like anyway more sad because they they lost their social network. Why don't you highlight this relation in your studies or in your presentation a little bit more? Yeah. So um, the the we we don't we probably could do more with UK data. Um, US data is nothing that really matches all that perfectly. Uh, with this, but it certainly is true that social connections tend to correlate positively with happiness at the, at the individual level. Um, I don't have great metropolitan area data on trust in the U.S. that I could readily use. Uh, I'd be happy to do that. I've written several papers on trust in, in my life and on the measurement of, of social capital. Um, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of what I know about trust and urban decline. It's moderately lower in declining cities, so there probably is some correlation with it, but I'd be surprised if it was that strong, but it's, it's, I'll try and dig out what I have on it and see, and it's a good question. Lady at the back, yeah, you. Hi, hi, uh, Zoe Janko from Arup. Um, so I think one of the trends in London and many, many other cities internationally uh, is for more people to live on their own. Um, and obviously that's associated with loneliness and unhappiness. Um, so I just wondered in, in your studies, did you control for family size and did you find any interesting relationships between uh, uh, family size, cities and happiness? 
So, yes, there are every, every one of the U.S. things we have specifications with or without family, family yeah. size controls. Um, for most of the things that you're looking at, it makes very little difference in terms of the overall, overall correlation. So, for example, it matters to the decline thing, not, not at all. Um, which is not to say that the family size demographic relationships aren't interesting intrinsically, but they didn't, they didn't particularly impact the things that I was, uh, that I was looking at. I, I think it is interesting the extent to which you know, the way that we shape our lives is, is related to the cities that surround us and then impact our, our happiness as well. Um, it's, always, it's never been entirely clear to me in terms of the you know, going solo happiness relationships, what was causing what, right? I mean, it's, it's also true that you know, it may be that happier people are more likely to be selecting into relationships as well as the other, as well as the other way around. But I think, I think it's, this is a great question for future research. Gentleman there. Um, my name is Richard. I'm also from Arup. Um, Sit down. <laughs> um, Different question. My, my question was about historically our cities haven't been planned or designed consciously by government or others, whereas now that's obviously over the past several decades it's been much stronger part of city development. Do you think there's something in this data that we can take from looking at controlling for planning and design in cities and can we use it to inform a process by which we make better design decisions with regard to cities? Yes, I think, I think, they, I think this is absolutely right, but I don't think there, there's much in this data as it currently stands that's all that useful on it. Um, the UK data tends to be a little bit finer in geographic detail, so maybe you could do a little bit more of it, but local authorities still are relatively big, big units. Um, and it's, um, the U.S. data is just too geographically coarse, and it's just very hard to think about how you would, how would, you, you would use this. Uh, but I think, in fact, you know, doing happiness surveys that are specifically designed around these interventions would, would make sense. Um, it also often makes sense to focus on you know, particular aspects, more finely tuned measures of happiness, both happiness with the place, but also looking at individual activities that people are doing and asking how happy they are with them in a variety of different ways, or asking how unhappy they are during their commutes or during their walks and, and so forth. So I think this type of survey data is useful in a whole sort of social science of urban government, social science of space, but I don't think you can just take a survey for three million Americans that was designed around health risks and suddenly turn it into a finely tuned device for getting out the impact of urban planning on individual well-being. I think it's just too coarse for it. So it's, it's okay for getting at large urban correlations, but even at the U.S. metropolitan area, within any normal American metropolitan area, there, there will be new urbanist communities, there will be old urbanist communities, there will be new suburban <coughs> communities, there will be all sorts of things, and it becomes very hard to sort of finely tune, specify it with one with one particular urban form. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the scale at which you do the work uh, is significant. I mean, 10 years ago, Philip uh, Roth and I and Tony Travers did some work on density in different neighborhoods in London, but at quite a small scale, literally with Ben Page and his team at Ipsos actually interviewing people. And the reaction towards um, the acceptance levels of higher densities was actually very much around proximity to some very spatial things, like a park, or access to uh, good levels of a certain type of public transport, or the river. I mean, I, but then you have to go down to another scale. And I think you could certainly, uh, from that level, sort of information scale back up and think about regulation and planning. I think this is exactly right. And just, just let me just highlight, again, the difference in the density relationships within London and across the country as a whole. So when we looked across the country as a whole, we saw this negative relationship. When we looked within London boroughs, there was nothing. And if anything, there was sort of this funny, this funny U, which is not nearly as fine-tuned as what you would like. 
But indeed, it sort of points out that once you're actually looking within cities, you know, you see something that's very different than once you're looking across cities and highlights yeah. the need to go more finely yeah. on this. But each of the 33 London boroughs has such, so such complete so sort of um, uh, difference in density levels. Yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, over there. Uh, hi, um, Paula Hurst. Um, you mentioned, you talked a little bit about the relationship with unemployment and density. I wonder if you've done any work to look at the relationship between skills and density um, and happiness. Um, mainly, the sort of mantra is the increased density will lead to enhanced economic productivity, and therefore what I was quite interested in is whether or not there's any correlation between those things when you account for people's skills levels, i.e. if there are more people with lower skills in one area, does that relationship then no longer hold valid and therefore by implication um, levels of happiness may indeed be lower. So, so I was impressed at the, at the local authority level that the skills relationships were as weak as they appeared to be in the UK. So I showed you somewhere back here the negative relationship with low levels of skills and happiness. So, so there was, there, that, did, that did show up. Um, the, the high skills did not show up as being strongly positively correlated with happiness across, across the local authorities. Um, that's not what we see in the U.S. data, where there is a positive relationship with happiness, but one that is largely explained by the individual correlation between skills and happiness. So once you control for the individual level of happiness, the, a- the aggregate level variable uh, goes away. Um, so, look, I am, I am a human capital purist, practically, in my belief in the, in the importance of education, and that, in fact, for almost any social problem that I can think of, investing more and better in, in education is the right answer. The happiness data, at least from the UK, doesn't, isn't the first thing that I would point to, though, on as being the back, backdrop of that. But don't let that dissuade you. I still think it's the right answer for everything. So, uh, so the... Uh, uh. Uh, and I was just... Um, I'll come to you, Nikki, in a moment. I mean, you, you've, you made, a, I think, a very uh, new point to many of us in the room of that happiness today depends on what happiness was once before. That, that actually, going back in the case of the American data of the 30s and 40s, and how those cities felt then affects the way cities feel now, which I thought was quite novel, uh, uh, that you can, in a way, carry on that legacy. And in looking forward, you made a number of speculations. The one, of course, biggest change, and this is not the classic area I would come to uh, urban change from, as you know, is, uh, but the one thing which is affecting change is technology. And, and have you speculated on that in terms of how that might actually impact things one way or another? Well, I mean, and, certainly and, I've, I've speculated about the broad connection between yeah. technology and, and urban life, right? And I've been, you know, I speculated about that 25 years ago, and, and I uh, now feel that I feel considerably more confident in the view that the technologies that make long-distance connection easier uh, have not in any sense made face-to-face contact and, you know, urban life less important. And, in fact, they've made urban life more important. Oh, and that that didn't at all seem obvious in 1990, but it seems really clear to me today. Mm-hmm. Because, in fact, what new technologies have done, what globalization has done, is they've radically increased the returns from being smart. And we still, despite it all, despite all the internet, we still fundamentally become smart by being around other smart people. And that's what cities do that are really important. And that continues. And the more complicated the world is, the easier it is for ideas to get lost in translation, and the more valuable it is to be in the same room to communicate with one another. Um, now, what this will do to urban happiness, uh, boy, this feels like terra incognita to me at this point in time. And in part because there's this whole nexus between new technologies and 
non-work activities in the city that I think are lost to people who are the age of 40 and have small children, right? There's a whole world of sort of technologies and urban fun that is not, that is not my world at this, at, this, at this point in time that I don't really understand. The one thing that I, I do think is, is clear is that sort of the technologies that enable urban sharing are something that probably will continue. And this is, a, this is sort of the, the Zipcar, the car sharing service in the US makes a big deal about how it's part of this harboring of a sharing economy that now we don't have to own our own cars, now we can share them. And that's clearly right. But cities have always been about sharing, right? It's, you know, it's what urban restaurants are. They're, they're a shared living room, they're, they're a shared dining room, they're a shared kitchen. It's what, you know, uh, like in fields are outside. They're, they're a shared urban park or a, share, a shared yard, um, shared backyard. But what technology has done is it means that we can share more stuff, right? Because in the 1970s, if you tried to have a zip car, you would go on, on Sunday morning to pick up your car, that you'd, and there'd be like a dead body lying in the trunk, right? Because it was New York in the 70s, and you wouldn't know who put it there, and it'd be a really bad thing. Now, with the technologies, you know what's going on, and it makes it possible to share more things. Now, what impact that will have on happiness, I have absolutely no, no idea in terms of the broader stuff, but it is certainly deeply interesting. You mentioned urban restaurants, so we have time for one more question here. Uh, Nikki Gavron, so we need to be brief, please. Oh, very brief, okay. I'm Nikki Gavron, I'm an underwide assembly member and chair of the Assembly's planning committee, which scrutinizes and holds the mayor to account. We have a policy in the London plan to promote um, mixed, mixed income communities, mixed income neighborhoods. And you touched on it a bit when you talked about segregation and in a few other points. But could you amplify how that correlates with happiness? Well, if you were confident, let me go back to that, because it, it shows up in one regression table, and I don't even have any, any graphs on it, but it's really big. Um, let's see if I can find it. And I really want to, if one... Sorry, none of us can understand those anyway. Okay. So, 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 just, uh, <laughs> sorry, just tell us. You explain it to us. It's much better. So these last two things here... Just, just <laughs> Thank you, Ricky. That's helpful. These last oh, two you explained it. Right. We understand. These last two lines show this really strong relationship uh, between more segregated cities in the U.S. where blacks and whites are more likely to live apart rather than together. The self-reported life satisfaction is lower for the whites, substantially, and it is much lower for the African-Americans. That is what these two graphs show, the two, the two last, last lines show. So it suggests that the mixing in the, in, is deeply beneficial in terms of self-reported life satisfaction between the races, particularly for African-Americans. That's what, if you put a causal lens on this, this is how you would interpret this. Now, because I wrote the paper that I wrote about urban decline, not about segregation, I did not in any sense give this enough, enough attention. But if... One did, in fact, believe these regressions, and I think they need a lot more attention and care before I want to attribute them causally. But if you believed it, then you would believe that there would be a huge happiness payoff for discouraging segregation and encouraging mixing, particularly for the minority populations in it, if you were willing to accept these on face value. Nikki, do you want to come back on that? Well, we've lost your microphone. I was, I was also... Um, do you have the microphone? It's coming. Can you um, correlate, it's, it's the income too, mixed income as well as mixed race. Uh, race. Um, in the U.S., the data on income segregation is much, much weaker mm. because, in fact, the census collects for racial data for every tract, for every neighborhood, for every block in the country. And as a result, we have extremely finely tuned segregation data up to 2000, actually. Post-2000, that's, that's actually dropped away due to, of course, budget cuts in the U.S. census. Um, but we don't have anywhere the same quality of income data, and I would be wary of, of claiming anything, but I would guess that the same relationships probably hold. 
I mean, obviously, Nikki's question is at the heart of the big debate in London at the moment about how, how do we deal with housing. And it's not just a density issue. It's who lives there and what uh, people of what sort of difference actually live there and um, what sort of environments and what policies do you need to decide. I think what we're all clear, where, wherever you stand, left or right, on that debate is the extraordinary lack of information right, on, on, on that. And Ed... I think you're beginning to really provide that base. One of the uh, good things of these weeks of having Ed Glazer here at the LSE is certainly the idea of beginning to develop some joint research projects uh, on both sides of the ocean. There already are many, but focusing on some of these more, maybe smaller scale sort of issues that bring uh, some of these stats and figures uh, down to the ground. That, don't take that as an insult. What I meant to say exactly right. is that if we didn't have you here, mate, uh, we wouldn't have understood anything. So can you join me in thanking Ed?